Good morning. morning. There are two readings this morning. The first is a reading from the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, chapter 1, verse 6, found on page 807 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, verses 2 and 5. These are found on page 262 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and living of this radiant truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Hey, we're finishing up this series, The Mothers of Jesus, next week. We have our Christmas Eve service where we'll finish on the mother of Jesus we normally think of, which is Mary. And uh, I invite you to invite others next week to Christmas Eve. Uh, Christmas Eve is one of those times where kind of culturally we still have this like sense of obligation to go to church on Christmas Eve. So it's a less awkward Sunday to invite people to, but it's also like a lot of singing. We'll sing a lot of carols. Um, it will be a little bit different of a service. It'll be a nice time where we hear passage of scripture, sing a carol, sing a pa hear passage of scripture, sing a carol. I think that'll be a nice time. So you should have received invite cards, probably from uh, some cute little kids as you're walking in. They were giving you some invite cards. If you don't, grab one on the info table and just give that to somebody this week and invite them to church next week. After that, we're going to have Story Sunday, where we get to hear two stories of two young people at our church about all God's doing in their lives. And then we'll do Vision Sunday, which will be the Sunday of, we'll also celebrate our birthday. Uh, there'll be a gift that Sunday. There'll be special treats, and we'll celebrate being five years old, which is really exciting, and hear about the five-year vision for the church. That'll be the first Sunday of January. And then uh, for the rest of January, into basically to about Palm Sunday, we'll be in the letter of Ephesians. So we'll wrap that up, wrap up this today, though. We're in second to last week here, where we look at the story of Bathsheba. Now, 
When I was a young boy, my hero was King David. Now, young people, your heroes might be the Avengers or Taylor Swift. Mine was King David. We probably should have predicted at that point that I would become a pastor, right? If your hero is King David, you're probably going to be a pastor or do something at church. So when I was about six, I used to dress up like King David when he was a shepherd. And there's no pictures that I'm going to show you today. You're just going to take my word for it. I've had decided not to embarrass myself showing you me dressed up as a shepherd at age six. But what I would do is I would run around my living room and I had this pretend slingshot and I would just like swing that thing around like over my head with like vigor. And then I would launch the invisible stone and slay the mighty Philistine, Goliath. Or as I knew him, my four-year-old brother, Jonathan. I don't know how that worked out. I was taller, yet he was still Goliath. So I don't know how that worked out. Now, David, who's the grandson of Obed, the son of Ruth, he's a shepherd turned greatest king of ancient Israel. And according to the Bible, he was a man after God's own heart. And when he became king, though, David's chief responsibility is the same responsibility that every king in Israel had was to protect Israel from apostasy. Essentially what that meant is David was supposed to be a representative of God to the Israelites, and he was to keep them accountable to God's law. And what we read in 1 Samuel and even in 2 Samuel is that David did a pretty great job at that for a while. But eventually, the man after God's own heart turns his heart against God and his people. And he committed a despicable sin, a sin that my parents never told me about when I was running around as my hero being King David, where he sexually assaults Bathsheba. And then he orders her husband to be murdered. And even though he isn't mentioned until the last verse of the chapter, we're told in verse 27 that God saw everything. And what I want us to understand today is that no sin is hidden from God. And because of that, all sin needs his forgiveness. There's no sin that you do There's no sin that's been done to you that God does not see. And because of that, all sin needs his forgiveness. So 2 Samuel breaks down like this. It's really interesting. It breaks down like flesh, blood, and eyes. You have the sin of flesh. You have the spilling of blood. And then you have the eyes of God. Flesh, Blood, eyes. And so let's look at the sin of flesh. This week, my son and his school's band had their Christmas concert. I have the joy of going to multiple Christmas concerts, many, many Christmas concerts, and that's partially my fault. I had four kids, so that's going to happen. 
And it started at 7 p.m. So Amanda went ahead of me, and she took my son, and I was following behind. And at 6.50, I pull into the parking lot, and I get this text. Where are you? They're starting early. I'm like, oh, crap. So I, like, am I allowed to say crap? I'm allowed to say crap. I, crap. I said, crap. So I, like, my son Evan's with me. I'm like, Evan, come on. Let's go. And we start sprinting to the auditorium. Then I get a second text. Oh, wait. It's just the prelude. The prelude is the act before the act, right? It's the act before the main act. And so what I want us to see when we talk about the sin of flesh, the prelude to sin is always wanting something other than what God has already given you. That's how it generally starts. The prelude to your sinful act, my sinful acts, is always wanting something that God has not in his wisdom decided to give me. And that's what these verse, two verse, first two verses of, first, second, of, of 2 Samuel 11 remind us of. There's always an act before the main act when it comes to sin. But before we get too far, I do want to slow down and I want to point out a few ways Christians have misread this text. And so if your church background, there may be some ways you've heard this and maybe some things we assume about this, but I want to just slow down because this is what 2 Samuel 11 does. Up to the 2 Samuel 10 is like fast-paced, it's action-paced, and all of a sudden it's like, and it slows down to tell us about this story. First, David's comfort and security has put him in moral and spiritual danger. I don't have it on the screen, but it says, in the spring of the first verse, the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that's one of his generals, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when, king, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful." David's comfort and security actually put him in great moral and spiritual danger. The problem, listen to me, the problem is not that David stayed home when everybody else went to war. David is not obligated to go to war. Kings were not obligated to go to war, especially when they knew they were going to make quick work of the Ammonites. They were just good. They were going to wipe them out. David doesn't have to be there. It's like in football, if you're like crushing a team, like you take out your starting quarterback, right? Because you don't want him to get injured. So why would we risk David's life for the Ammonites? The problem is the prelude. David's comfort and security are the prelude to his moral and spiritual failure. There's a reason why Proverbs 20, 16.27 says, A worthless man plots evil. There's a reason why that St. Jerome in the 4th century said, engage in some occupation so that the devil may always find you busy. And Ben Franklin, there's a reason why he said, idle hands are the devil's playthings. Comfort and security are often the prelude to sin. Comfort and security are good things, but good things can become bad things when they become ruling things. And when comfort and security rules our lives, they become ruling things in our lives, we open ourselves up to sin. When you're alone with your girlfriend or boyfriend, 
When you're up on your phone when everybody else went to bed. When your boss doesn't stop by as much as he used to. The prelude to sin is when we stop being morally and spiritually vigilant. And it's that act that leads to the main act of sin. And for the other observations I want to point out from this, I get from Carmen Joy Imes, who's an Old Testament scholar at Biola University. The other thing I want to point out is the author, hands down, puts all the blame on David. A couple things here. Bathsheba was not bathing on the roof. Read verse 2 again. She is not bathing on the roof. David arose from his couch and was walking. We can even highlight. I think on the, there's one where I underline. Yeah, here we go. It happened when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. He never, never says she's bathing on the roof. David is on the roof. David saw from the roof Bathsheba, who's bathing privately in her home. Maybe she should have closed the curtains, right? At worst, though, that's naive. If they even had curtains back then. But David doesn't turn away. It doesn't matter if from my house I see somebody changing. It's my decision in that moment to turn away or to keep looking. David does the same exact thing. So look at verse 3. What does he do? And David sent and inquired about the woman. All right, we see where this is going, right? This is, this is bad news. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, that, that would, that's pretty bad already, right? David already has seven wives. So it's not like he's going to look, out, look for a wife. It's not his thing. He's already got seven. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Notice who's the, who's the person doing all the action? Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So also in these days, I think it's important for us to know, is that people didn't bathe privately unless they had a reason to do so. People, women, would go to a public pool and bathe there, like the pool of, of uh, Siloam that we read about in the New Testament. It's actually not that far from this. Bash, so this is the point. We might not see this with 21st century eyes. Bathsheba's bathing is more private, not less than normal. And why is she bathing at home? Because we saw in verse 4, she was unclean, which women were required to do by God's law to bathe themselves after their menstruation. So the point is, Bathsheba kept God's law. David breaks it. See, the prelude of lust led David to his main act of sin. And I think we have to remind ourselves there is a difference between what's natural and what's lustful. 
Dallas Willard talks about looking and desiring versus looking to desire. All right, so looking and desiring is natural. There's nothing wrong with David walking on the roof, seeing Bathsheba bathing, and being like, man, she's pretty. That's reflexive. That's natural. It's God-designed and a God-given desire. But the point is, we often move beyond what's natural, looking and desiring, and cross over to looking to desire, which is lust. Looking to desire is looking at someone other than your spouse to indulge in fantasy. What Jesus calls adultery of the heart, it's that second or third glance. It's not like, oh, she's naked, she's pretty, okay. Actually, the Bible doesn't even say she's naked. That's another thing we could probably draw from this. But it's that second or third glance. It's intentional. It's willful to look to desire someone other than your spouse. And even here, David's prelude to sin crosses over from natural to lustful to despicable. David's chief responsibility was to keep Israel from doing this kind of thing. And yet he fell into it himself. And so he fails to be a representative of God to God's people. So what does he do? He calls for Bathsheba. And Bathsheba, listen, Bathsheba has to come. This isn't 21st century democracy where Joe Biden's like, hey, Evan, come to the White House. I'd be like, yeah, I don't really feel like it, bro. That doesn't happen. You don't say no to the king. No one can resist and refuse the king, especially the wife of someone who we know from Scripture who's under, whose husband is, she, her husband is under the king's command, and her dad is too. So she's definitely not going to refuse the king. We also see here as David failed as king, but also as a man of Israel. The Ten Commandments are addressed to men by default. David, as an as Israelite man, wasn't just responsible for his wife, again, which he already had seven of, by the way, but also he's responsible for his neighbor's wife. That's why the Ten Commandments say, do not covet your neighbor's wife. You have responsibility to your neighbor and protecting his wife. Regardless of what David may have wanted, it's his responsibility, not just as king, but as a man of God, a man in Israel, to protect his neighbor's marriage. The author wants us to see David is completely at fault. And if you need more convincing, maybe you're like, all right, well, maybe, Evan, that's fine. Read the next chapter when you get home and watch how Nathan talks to David. David is completely at fault. But all sin has the same root. All sin has the same root of the first sin that we read about in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 6 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that tree was to be desired, wanted to make one wise, she took of its first of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. What did Eve do? She saw, she wanted, she took. What does David do? He sees, he wants, he takes. When we see something and then we want something other than what God has given us or has commanded of us, and, th and then what we do is we take it. We see, we want, we take. All sin basically boils down to those three movements. See, want, take. I see office supplies that aren't mine. I want them. So I take them home with me. See, want, take. I see a woman on a screen. I want her, so my heart takes her into my fantasies. Young people, you see someone else's work. You want it because that way you can be done with this assignment, finally. So you take it and you plagiarize it as your own. Where do you find yourself doing those movements of sin? Where do you find yourself seeing, wanting, and taking? Because if you can identify, if I can identify the movements of sin when I'm doing them, we, by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have the power to stop ourselves before we go too far. Because once we've gone too far, we're tempted to go even further. And that's exactly what David does. He wants Sorry, he sees, he wants, he takes, and then he goes even further with the spilling of blood. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Uh, you know, he's fluffing this conversation up a little bit. Then David said to Uriah, hey, you know what? Why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. All right? David's, you know, setting this up. Why don't you go home? But Uriah, what did he do? He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. It did not go down to his house. So David, what David does here, he has the general send Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home so he can try and cover up his own sin that's what's happening here what Uriah is trying to do is have I'm sorry what David's trying to do is have Uriah go home sleep with his wife so people will be like oh look congratulations Uriah on your child and they wouldn't think the baby's David's but Uriah won't go home because he's just as morally upright as his wife he won't go home because he says his fellow soldiers and the Ark of the Covenant are still in battle. How can I go home? So as the story progresses, what David does is he actually gets him nice and drunk. And he's hoping that he'll go home and sleep with his wife. But what does Uriah do? He sleeps on the couch at the palace. So David, at that point, he's had enough. And he, so he sets up this plot to kill Uriah, to cover up his sin. So he writes a letter to General Joab, and pick up in verse 15. 
In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He's like, all right, put him up there with the, the line, the front lines, and then as soon as the fighting gets hard, just pull back. So be Uriah versus this whole army. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. Now, you're, you notice Joab kind of changes the plan, probably because David's plan was not very creative. It's like, everyone's going to know, bro, you set up this guy to die. So we're just going to add a few more guys in there that are going to die with them. Good stuff, right? And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So then what happens is Joab sends a messenger to deliver the news to David that here's what happened, and that Uriah was dead. See, the guilt and shame of our sin convinces us we need to cover it up. When we see, when we want, and then take, we have guilt and shame, so what we do is we cover it up. You ever hear the stories about convicts who turn themselves in? You know why they always make it to the news? Because nobody does that. Most times when people feel, you and me included, we feel our sin, we, sorry, we feel our guilt and shame of our sin, what do we do? We run. We hide it. Murderers dig literal graves, and you and I dig figurative ones. David's prelude to sin and looking to desire, we might say, is problematic. Lusting, that's a problem. That should be addressed. But it's not despicable. But David doesn't stop there. He saw, he wanted, and then he took. He salted, he impregnated, and then he spills blood to cover it up. Lust leads to assault, which leads to murder. And there's lots of steps along the way, lots of opportunities for David to turn back. But as often as the case, once you've dug your grave so deep and you feel guilt and shame, we convince ourselves the best move at this point is to keep digging. Let me just keep digging that grave. Let me just cover it up by any means possible rather than bring it into the light. Look, it takes courage to bring your sin into the light, doesn't it? It takes a lot of courage to do that. You have to be brave to do that. If David brought his lust into the light, if he went and he told another brother in the Lord, he said, hey man, I was on the roof and I peered into this window and there's this attractive woman bathing and I started fantasizing about her. Dude, would you keep me accountable that I don't do anything else with that? That I actually confess my sins to God? Would you just hold me accountable to that? None of this would have happened. But instead, he goes the extra step. He digs himself so deep. And it's often here where guilt and shame starts to eat us up inside. And it's at that time we try to hide it, often at the expense of others. See, we think that we're doing ourselves a favor. We think we can keep the lid on our sin. But someone inevitably gets hurt by it. Is there sin and shame convincing you right now the best thing to do is to put a lid on it and hide it rather than bring it into light? Is there a sin in your life that you think is just your problem? That's just, you got to deal with it. 
but will eventually become someone else's pain. An unhealthy relationship with alcohol eventually becomes an embarrassment to those who are around you when you drink. Our harsh language and tone can cause real trauma to the people we claim to love. Your workaholism hurts your relationship with your spouse. Your control suffocates your family. Sin always hurts more than just you. The more guilt and shame you have, then the longer you try and hide it, the more it hurts more than just you. And that's why Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We need to have the courage to bring our sin into light before God, but also before others in God's family. Like James says, confess your sins to one another. Because God knows that in order for you and I to be freed from guilt and shame, we need to bring it into the light. We can't just hide it. We can't just keep a lid on it. We have to bring it before him. We have to bring it before others so that guilt and shame doesn't eat us alive and doesn't begin to hurt others and will figuratively kill our relationship with those people. Unchecked, unconfessed sin always brings guilt and shame, and it always results in death, sometimes literally, but most times metaphorically. And so lastly, we see the eyes of God. Jump down to verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab. So the messenger comes. He says, Hey, Uriah died. These other guys died. Hey, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours not now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Doesn't really seem like a guy who's very sad about what he did, does it? He's like, Hey, brush it off. It's all good. Rub some dirt on it. And encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. David could care less. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We might be able to hide our sin from the eyes of others. Say you can pull that off. But no sin is hidden from the eyes of God. One of the most legendary NFL agents is Drew Rosenhaus. And Eagle fans will remember Drew Rosenhaus at T.O.'s, Terrell Owens' apology. Right? T.O. had torn apart the locker room at that point, and the media begins to question T.O., and Drew Rosenhaus steps forward, and he keeps saying what? Next question. Hey, what about this? Next question. What about this? Next question. You and I are our sin's best agents. We do such good PR with our sin, don't we? We like to, when others point out our failures, ask us questions about them, we try and justify them or we gaslight them. And we act like it's no big deal. We're just like, hey, you know, we just brush it off. Next question. 
Next question. Hey, man, I've really seen this in your life. Hey, no, hey, no, don't worry about it. Next question. But no matter how good we might be at brushing off our sin, God never brushes it off. David told Joab to brush off Uriah's death, but God did not brush it off. God, I want you to listen to me when I say this, God does not and cannot brush off your sin or anyone else's. He can't brush off your sin, and he can't brush off the sin someone did to you. Think about this. What if God just brushed off David's assault of Bathsheba? Ah, it's not a big deal. He's the king. Let him do what he wants. What if he justified David's sin? He wouldn't be a God who takes sin seriously. David may have thought he got away with this, but Bathsheba, and Bathsheba may have felt that no one saw the sin that had been done to her, but God saw it all. So Dale Ralph Davis, he's a scholar, he says, David may have Bathsheba's flesh and Uriah's blood, but he will have to face Yahweh's eyes. Sin always requires judgment. And although God forgives we should never confuse God's forgiveness with aloofness or ignorance. God must judge sin. He must judge your sin, and he must judge the sin of others, even the sin that someone did to you. And the cause of that sin is death, the Bible says. So God sent the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 to deliver this news to David. The cost of David's sin is death, the death of the son Bathsheba bore. The cost of our sin is death. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. Don't move past that so quickly. The wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can be saved from spiritual death in hell because Bathsheba's other greater son, Jesus, experienced death for us. Death is the cost. And spiritual death is the cost of sin. And either you experience it or Jesus has experienced it for you. It's your choice. David, the man after God's own heart, turned his heart away from God and God's people. And when he committed this despicable sin, and because God can't brush off sin, it costs David his son. And our sin, despicable or not, deserves the same and because God can't brush off sin, it cost him his son, Jesus. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you can be freed from the cost of your sin. You can be freed from your guilt and shame, and you're given the Holy Spirit to give you courage to bring your sin into the light, to fight off the sin of the flesh, to keep you from spilling blood, and know that you are forgiven in the eyes of God. 
And because you're forgiven in the eyes of God, you can take sin seriously too. And you can forgive boldly. You can take sin seriously. Don't just brush it off. Don't just brush off sin that happens in your own life or to somebody does or somebody does to you. When you sin or someone else sins, remind yourself God doesn't brush it off. God will handle it. But when you confess your sin or they confess theirs, you're forgiven. They are forgiven in the eyes of God. And that frees you to forgive others boldly. If you take your sins seriously, you can take forgiveness seriously. It doesn't mean we brush it off and act like it never happened. That would be foolish, it would be unbiblical, and it would be anti-God. But it keeps us from trying to judge others ourselves. Where we pull back and say, I'm not the judge. Somebody else will handle this. This will not be brushed off. God will deal with it. It's me. When I forgive somebody, it's not me saying, hey, you know what? You hurt my kids. Let me just let you watch my kids again. No, no, no. That's absolutely what God would be like. No, that's unwise. Don't do that. But when you forgive, it's you saying, I'm going to pull back from seeking vengeance against you. I'm going to pull back from being the judge. I'm going to pull back from paying back to you what you did to me because that's God's job. And if we come to terms with the severity of our sin that drove Jesus to the cross, we can choose to forgive the sins of others that drove Jesus to the cross for theirs. So let me ask you as we close. Where's comfort and security setting you up for moral and spiritual failure? Is there a place in your life where you're not being morally and spiritually vigilant? Where are you trying to hide your sin? Where do you need more courage to bring into light? Is there someone in your life that you could bring your sin into light to? And also, by the way, that's why we confess our sins every Sunday. When you say that prayer, it's us practically learning how to actually confess our sins to each other. It's more general, yeah, but it teaches you the importance, teaches me the importance of actually confessing my sins. And lastly, what do you need to do to take sin more seriously? Where has your sin begun to hurt others? Who do you need to seek forgiveness from? Where do you need more boldness to forgive? And where do you need in your life to receive the forgiveness of God? Because God sees every sin. And God takes every sin very seriously. But in Jesus, he offers us forgiveness. No matter how severe your sin might be, bring it before God. Bring it before his eyes. And because of Jesus, he doesn't look at you. With his eyes, doesn't look at your sin. He looks at Jesus and he says, you are forgiven. So receive his forgiveness today. Let's pray.